Lord, we praise you for the songs of triumph that we've been privileged to sing. We praise you for the life that we have in Christ, the promise of your word, and pray now in behalf of those who are separated from that life that you would draw them to saving faith in Christ. I pray for those who know you and trust you as Lord and Savior. Father, may we deepen and grow in our confidence knowing that there is far more than just intellectual agreement on what your word has said. But Lord, in times of suffering and trial and pain, and in that moment when we enter into eternity, these truths that we grasp today will be the foundation under our feet, the breath that drives us to you, the strength that we need. I pray, Father, that you will prepare us for what you have for us and that we will grow and mature in our knowledge of the Scriptures together. Please move in this time by your Spirit to accomplish the work of conviction and edification that you desire in this time that we have together as your body. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Death is God's arch enemy. Until death is dead... God's glory remains partially clouded. Thus, the death of death remains God's unfinished business. Consider a young girl who's just becoming aware of the sun. On an overcast day, she looks up at that dull circle of light and sees that in the sky, and she's told that that's the sun, it lights our world, and she's thinking that's a lot of light. But it's not very bright. I can look right at it. It's not until the clouds clear and she sees the sun set against the blue sky that she sees the brilliance of that sun. And she sees that its brilliance is beyond compare and it's too much for the eyes to see. The sun dog on the way this morning, if you saw that, and trying to see the two points of light on the other side, the sun just, my eyes began to water, not even looking at the sun. When the clouds are removed, it's then that we see the brilliance of that light. Death is like a cloud bank hiding the sun. It obscures the full display of God's glory in this world and what he is doing. So eliminating death is God's unfinished business. And we gather this Lord's Day to rejoice that God will indeed finish this business. With robust hope, we gather in anticipation of the day that death will be swallowed up by life. This final chapter of redemption history was set in motion, of course, by Jesus of Nazareth rising from the dead. But God's fully unveiled glory will be revealed when our corpses are resurrected in new glorious form, which will finally reveal the full brilliance of God's glory, which is our eternal joy and our satisfaction. So we owe much of this conviction to Paul's correction of some in the Corinthian church who failed to see this truth. Their blindness to it was likely due to the harmful influence of pagan Greek philosophy on their worldview. But Paul realizes that the gospel itself is at stake in this error, 
And he responds with a classic defense of the bodily resurrection. But we need to face some contextual hurdles as we come into this chapter on resurrection, as we come into this section of it. After reminding the Corinthians of the gospel in verses 1 through 11, which we considered last week, Paul comes to the crux of the problem in verse 12. All that he said in these first 11 verses, there would be agreement on this. It's a classic statement, vital that we understand what the gospel is. But he gets to the issue here in verse 12 when he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the problem. The Corinthians, again, likely influenced by the belief that immortality is gained only by escaping the body. Greek philosophers referred to the body tomb. They had kind of a sing-songy opportunity here, for body is soma and tomb is sema. So they speak of the soma-sema, the body tomb. The body was seen as a useless shell from which death freed the spirit. We're coming back to that thinking in our culture little by little as we degrade the body. This idea also played into the belief that their possession of miraculous gifts, especially the gift of tongues, maybe indicated that they occupied a completed spiritual state, an angelic existence of sorts, in which the body played no essential role. They were spirit people. And once the body was removed to death, all would get actually better than what they experience right now. Whatever their motivations, whatever fed into this thinking, some were rejecting the doctrine then of the bodily resurrection. But we have to ask here at verse 12, does this mean that they denied the resurrection of Jesus or only the resurrection of believers? Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This question is, I think, answered by two other questions. First, can a true believer deny the resurrection of Christ? Can one be truly born again to salvation in Jesus who says, I don't believe that he rose from the dead? We're jumping ahead, but verse 17 is the succinct answer to that. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. No, is the answer. Second question, were the Corinthians true believers? Did they genuinely know Christ as Savior? Now, Paul doesn't say much about the some who believe this, but let's remember in chapter 1 and verse 2, there he speaks of the Corinthian church as those who are sanctified, those who are set apart to Christ Jesus, called to be saints, holy ones, separated ones from the world, with all, everywhere, in every place, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Down at verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Clearly speaking to them as believers. Chapter 6, 
chapter 6 and verse 11, such were some of you, as he speaks of these life-dominating sins, but then says to them, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And then here in chapter 15, verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, there's the the brotherhood, the believing family of God. I would remind you of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. So question one, can a true believer deny the resurrection of Christ? No, no. Does Paul treat them as genuine believers in Christ? He does. Now again, the specific case of these some who denied the resurrection is is left open, but he definitely sees these people as believers in Christ. So I, I believe verse 13 clinches this question as he reasons here, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If they're starting with that premise, Christ has not been raised, then it's odd that he would reason them to that conclusion. So with all of that said then, I believe that what is going on here is that the some in the Corinthian church were denying the resurrection of believers, not the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus died and rose again. Cool, weird, but nice, okay, but none of us. That was just his unique experience. It has nothing to do with us. We will be delivered from the Soma Sema. We will be delivered from the body tomb forever. Uh, There's an inconsistency here, certainly, but this seems to be where they're at. Here's our problem. We don't face that problem. That is not our world at all, is it? I'm not aware, maybe you are, but I've never heard of a cult that says Jesus truly rose from the dead, but we won't. They're in a different culture, under a different worldview. It seems weird to us, but to them it made perfect sense. Our issue is what? Our issue in our day is Jesus did not rise from the dead. And so we go to this passage often to defend the resurrection of Christ, which is fair and right, but we need to understand on this ground as we enter into this conversation, that's really not what he's addressing. Did Jesus rise from the dead is assumed from start to finish in 1 Corinthians 15. So it's useful for us when in apologetics, in defending the faith against unbelief, But it's here that we need to recalibrate to their setting that we rightly understand the passage. If we put this together then at the outset, assuming what we'll look at here later, Paul certainly supports the historicity of the gospel. He certainly affirms Jesus' resurrection. But Paul's main point here is not that Jesus rose from the dead. His main point here is that, Christian, you will rise from the dead. Because Christ rose from the dead, we will join him in that life and the glory of God will not be seen until death is gone. Nobody's dead anymore. This passage then reveals God's plan to destroy death ultimately and fully so that the full brilliance of his glory will be seen for all eternity. Things are not put right until we get to this place, and it's in our bones to know it. We know it's not right. 
we know something is so terribly twisted and wrong as we continue to experience death in this world. So we can divide this section into two ideas. First of all, he lays out some hypothetical horrors. Given your belief, here's the result of it, he says. If, if we're not resurrected, all is lost. And he gives about seven ideas here as to what that would mean if it's the case that we will not rise from the dead. Verse 12, again, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? How is it possible For me to preach the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection and for you to conclude that you will not be resurrected from the dead. You are not, you are failing to see the implications of the gospel in your life. Because if that's true, then verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul's saying in a sense, let's assume for sake of argument that your position is accurate. We'll take the hypothetical. If human beings do not rise from the dead, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. Notice, I mean, without even defending it, Paul just assumes the true humanity of Jesus here. His full identification with the human race. So if real flesh and blood people do not rise from the dead, which some of you are saying, then Jesus is a real flesh and blood person and therefore could not rise from the dead. Jesus was not a phantom. He was not pretending to be a man. He was not temporarily occupying a body. If the corpses of the dead are not resurrected, then Jesus was not resurrected. You can't have it both ways. He just exposes here the the, the irrationality of their conclusion. But the implication is what? Then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The apostolic message of salvation hinged upon the historical reality of Christ's crucifixion. It rested equally on the historical reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. So if people do not rise from the dead, then Christ did not. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, the gospel is empty of all meaning and your faith is useless. What is more, the implications continue to tumble out here, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. This phrase could be translated, we are false witnesses about what God did. Like we're lying about God if we say that Christ rose from the dead because he was true man and he truly died and was buried. We, we see here, don't we, that Christianity is not advice. It is, at its core, a report. So the apostles were not sharing advice about how one might like to live. But they were sharing a report about what God had done in time and space and for the redemption of his people. So the point has been made then, but Paul doubles down on it here in verse 16. This is the report that we have given. This is the reality of it. This is the inconsistency of your thinking. Let me say it again, verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He could not be clearer. You cannot be saved apart from belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
you are still in your sins is the implication. The resurrection of Christ is utterly essential. We see this in Romans chapter 4 where God raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The delivering up for our sins, the death of Jesus to bear our sins, to say it another way is to say that we are justified by his resurrection, raised for our justification. The two go together as one. The sacrifice of Christ to pay the cost of sin, the resurrection of Christ for our justification and for our life in him. It is absolutely essential. The atoning sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God against our sin was useless until Jesus defeated the penalty of sin, which is death. In a garden tomb just beyond the city walls of Jerusalem, life triumphed over sin and death when Jesus rose from the tomb. Look at these words. Just take them in again. We take them to be orthodox truth with which we're familiar. But if the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In our camp, I would encourage us as we look to literature that evangelizes, tracts and little books and the like that we hand to unbelievers, be cautious. It is amazing how many give light touch to the resurrection if they even mention it. Don't give anybody literature about salvation that doesn't land solidly on the resurrection of Christ. It is in belief in that, as Romans 10 says, that we find salvation. We must believe this. But how strange outside of our camp to hear of those who claim to be Christ followers who say such strange things. Marcus Borg, in The Meaning of Jesus, his book, he writes this, I quote, I see the empty tomb and whatever happened to the corpse of Jesus to be ultimately irrelevant to the truth of Easter. The truth of Easter does not depend upon something having happened to Jesus' corpse. The apostle would strenuously disagree. What what Paul would say to that man is, you are lost. You can call yourself a Christian. You can play around with books that talk about his resurrection and what that means as some sort of ethereal memory of Jesus. You are lost in your sin. You don't get the good news without getting the resurrection. Well, if the Corinthian belief was true, Paul argues, then they'd be lost. And if their belief was true, the tragedy of it would pass not just to them, but also to those who had gone before, verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished to fall asleep in Christ, a figure of speech for believers who die. This gentle figure of having fallen asleep is not fear of death that leads to this gentle figure of they're asleep. And, but the idea is that it, it, for, for something as jarring as death, to speak of it as falling asleep reflects the belief that Jesus removed the stinger from the scorpion of death. The dead in Christ will be roused from their slumber. This does not mean that they're actually 
sleeping and have dreams or the like, or are conscious of in that sense. But it's just a figure of speech. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Paul continues to theorize here, then these deceased Christians are forever lost and will never awake. And notice that Paul gives not a momentary thought to the possibility that we exist as spirit alone. Paul knows that he knows of the creation account, and he wholly assumes that human beings are body and spirit. God formed the body out of the dust of the earth and breathed into Adam, breathed into his, the nostril, into his nostrils the life. Spirit and body brought together. Death is the separation, then, of spirit and body. I cannot count the times how often I've heard at the bedside of someone who has died or standing at an open casket to hear somebody say something like this, they're not here. It's just not them. That's not him. He's clearly gone. It doesn't even look like her. We know there's something intuitive to our very nature that body and spirit must go together for that's who we are. We are by nature body and spirit beings and when those two components are taken apart, that separation is what we call death. And we will never be whole again unless those two are united again. He'll go on in this chapter to explain that the resurrection body isn't precisely like this one. There will be an improvement, thank God for that. We don't know what that will look like, but it will be the same body. We will never be whole again unless the two are united. I do think it's not the point here. I do believe that as a, a believer enters into the presence of the Lord in spirit, that a body is temporarily provided. But none of this is fixed and back to right until it's our body and spirit in the resurrection. Without the reunion of body and spirit, we would be perished forever. And if that's the case, then verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Pitied not because the Christian life is a bore, not because the Christian life is dull and we just, or is actually a cause of pain and we just have to endure so that we have better life in, in, the, in eternity. This, of course, is not his point. The best life anyone could live is the Christian life. But what's to be pities is the expectation that we place upon the work of Christ if it doesn't ever come to fruition. If this was the case, we would be, as one called it, martyrs to an illusion. The disappointment of the lost might be fairly minimal. Because there's not a whole lot of expectation there. They don't know what's coming. They don't even want to think about it. But for the believer, we're saying that our best life isn't now. Our best life is ahead of us. How to be pitied would we be if we came to find there's nothing? We just perish. We just pass out of existence. Well, that's the hypothetical. If we are not resurrected, absolutely everything is lost. But he moves then secondly in verses 20 and following to the glorious certainty of Christ's resurrection assuring ours. This is the assurance that we have. And the huge capital letters, but, 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's the, the, the rise of the symphony here, isn't it? We ha- he has been raised. Remember, fallen asleep, referring to believers who have died. Christ is the first fruits. The Israelites would ritualistically go into a field near Jerusalem and they would bind up a sheaf. Several of them would be involved in this ritual. They'd bind up a sheaf and they'd cut that standing grain right at the beginning of harvest at Passover and they'd bring it to the altar and they would uh, create flour and mix it with oil and frankincense and wave it before the Lord as a sacrifice and an offering. And what did that first fruits offering say? Thank you, God, for your provision and we do so with absolute confidence in the harvest to come. Christ in resurrection is the first fruits. He's that one who defeated death and is then the guarantee of the harvest to come. That is us as we come behind. His resurrection then was not a solitary event as, the, as some, these, some in the Corinthian church were thinking. That is just Jesus. That was you know, nice for him. He rose from the dead. No, this is us. We are in solidarity with him. Christ's resurrection was the first in a chain of events that will culminate in the very death of death. That statement, verse 20, Paul now works out theologically beginning in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam is the head of the race, and we are all subjected to death in solidarity as sinners with Adam. This is our natural position. Christ, as the new Adam, is the head of a new race of believers who are brought to life in union with him. Now some would read this, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. They take the second all there to be absolutely everybody. Well, this we know obviously conflicts with the entire Bible, but what is, what is he saying here? What he's saying here is the race of Adam and the new race in Christ. It's those all who will be raised to new life. So again, the point is that Christ's resurrection purchased eternal life for his people. His resurrection guarantees ours. As sure as death is for those in Adam, equally sure is eternal life promised to those who are in Christ. But, verse 23, each in his own order. Let's now start talking time. Let's start talking position. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then sequential order, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So we have his first coming there in verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that's his first coming, he rose from the dead, then sequentially after that, at his coming, this is his second coming, those who belong to Christ, those who are in Christ will be resurrected from death to live with Christ forever at that time. Then comes the end. Verse 24. 
The first then in verse 23 is clearly sequential. Jesus' resurrection during his first coming followed later in time by the second resurrection, or by by the resurrection at his second coming. It seems then most natural to me to take this second then here in verse 24 as also indicating sequence. The then of verse 23 clearly is sequential. The then of verse 24 is debatable. But after the second coming, I would take it again sequentially, after the second coming there is a passage of time, the length of which we do not entirely know, but the passage of time will culminate in the end. That is the end of redemption story. And progress toward that end involves what, verse 24? Then comes the end, and the progress toward it is this, here's the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Christ will rule the kingdom, he will reign over his enemies until he has crushed every rival power. Every rebellious king, every rebel authority will be subdued by Christ. Then he will turn the kingdom over to the Father. This process is necessary because, verse 25, he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. A picture of the triumph of of Christ. This is an allusion to Psalm 110 and verse 1. Verse 2 of that psalm says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So there's a picture of Christ ruling in the midst of his enemies, bringing those enemies to subjection, and then turning the kingdom over to the Father. Verse 6 of Psalm 110, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So drawing on Psalm 110, Christ will conquer every enemy. And then, sequentially, he will turn over the kingdom to the Father. What's the last enemy? Verse 26, key phrase. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the enemy that will be put down ultimately. So there are enemies before the ultimate enemy. The enemies before are all who rebel against Christ, will all be crushed and put under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. How do you destroy death? You bring everybody dead to life. There will be no more death. No separation of spirit and body ever again. Now he does not focus here on the lost and what that means for them. But in the end, all will be brought to life, to judgment, or into the presence of the Lord forever. Verse 27, 4 It's 27 and 28, just a lot of qualification. There's not a lot of point here other than just to rightly set the puzzle pieces. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And the ESV assumes God, I think it assumes the right thing. It just says him, he. But for God, the Father, has put all things in subjection under the Son's feet. Psalm 110. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
That is, the Father is, of course, not subjected to the Son. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Let's remember here, there's only one God. The Son is thus in no way inferior to the Father, but functionally, He will be subjected to the Father in what way? Functionally, His labors as Redeemer will be complete. There will be no more death. And when they do, when when they are brought to completion, God will forever be all in all. You say, well, isn't He all in all anyway? There is so much of already and not yet that continues on here. It was even in the reading earlier that spoke of the already And we have here the sequential development of what is not yet. All things are under Christ's feet. He is the ruler over all things. And yet there's a not yet completion that has to take place. So there's only one God. The Son is not inferior to the Father in the sense of ontology, of essence. But when all is brought together, God will be all in all. That is... The brilliance of God's glory will shine without shadow. Redemption story complete. Satan banished. The lost judged. Sin gone. Death forever defeated. God will be seen as all in all. Everything in the new heavens and the new earth will be reconciled to God and death itself will be vanished. And do you get that feel in your soul from time to time? Just everything's twisted. It doesn't quite fit. It's not where it should be. And wow, do we ever face that when we see death? The world is just calibrated the wrong way. Beyond our capacity to imagine, everything will be brought into perfect sync again. It's a long, long process from our perspective. We're just a passing wisp of wind. But in the mind of God, there is a process and a plan here that will bring everything together. And I believe that in eternity, we will say to the depths of our soul, Ah, now it's all right. God is all in all. And there is no death. So we can see why Paul gets so exercised here with the Corinthians. To reject the bodily resurrection in a manner of speaking as far as Paul is concerned, as these believers are saying, we'll leave the cloud bank up there forever. We will shroud the brilliance of God's glory in his defeat of death by saying that, yeah, we'll never really get the spirit and the body back together again. Not a chance, says Paul. God will be seen as all in all. Redemption story will be complete. And the cloud bank of death will be forever removed when God raises all who have died in Christ to an eternity with him. Jesus was the start. He was the first fruits of this great harvest to come. And deep within our souls there is the longing for him to finish the business. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what a glorious future awaits us. We can only begin to imagine. But may the assurance of God's sovereign plan 
help us in the midst of physical pain, debilitation, disease, and death. Christ's resurrection assures us that all these trials, no matter how severe, will pale in comparison with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Believer in Christ, our best days are always in front of us. And they are days better than we can even start to imagine when God is all in all. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, indeed. And Paul proclaims it in this chapter. But what Paul's insistence is here is, believer, you will rise from the dead. You will be resurrected. You will be put right in a way that you've never sensed at this point. Your resurrection is guaranteed consequence of his. Our destiny in Christ is to live forever, body and spirit, glorified in God's presence. This is God's promise to us as we await his return. But this hope is not yours if you have failed to receive the good news. If you have not yet, at this point in your journey of life, put your trust and your confidence in Jesus crucified for the forgiveness of sin and risen to give life to his people, if you've not put your trust and confidence in that truth, then this confidence is not yours. Now, again, I would say on the basis of Revelation 20 and verse 5 that you too will come to life but yours will be an ongoing death. It's not the separation of body and spirit, but is the separation of the spirit from God. If you say in this life, I don't need God, in eternity, he'll give you your way. And that will be the horror of all eternity, to be outside of God's presence. Notice the emphasis of that in Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians verse, uh, verses 7 and 9 of the first chapter. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And sinners tend to lock in to verse seven verse eight and say well that's really mean inflicting inflicting vengeance on those who do not know god and those who do not obey the gospel this flaming fire of vengeance that comes that's just the glory of god to one who won't receive it when we reject him all that glory flows against us when we receive him and submit to his lordship and receive him as the king of kings and lord of lords and joy of our life, then that glory flows to us for our ultimate joy. So that everything that goes right to the believer with God as all in all goes against those who reject him as the all in all. There really is no choice here. And the answer is right here before us. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ to reconcile you to God in the midst of your sin. What would keep you from that? What joy in sin, what pleasure in sin right now 
would keep you from that eternal joy and that joy indeed in this life as it begins. So let us take this truth to heart. We will live forever. Death will reign over nobody in the end other than the spiritual death of separation from the Lord. When Jesus finishes his work of redemption, when God is seen in the full brilliance of his splendor, when he is all in all, we will be hideous creatures devolving into our sin for eternity and tortured by our separation from him and from all that is good forever, the glory of God working against us forever and ever. Or, We will be glorious creatures, transformed beyond comprehension as we bask in the brilliance of God's eternal presence where there is fullness of joy. We look at one another down here and we don't look very different, but we are heading in two entirely different directions. Which direction are you headed? Which destiny is yours? Are you living as if that is your destiny? You will rise, believer. The harvest of life awaits us. Death will not have the last word. God will. You will rise, believer. You will rise in him. Lord, how we praise you for this promise. Help us believe. Oh, how weak is our faith. How we see it day in and day out as we get so consumed with the small failures and the trials and the heartaches of this life which pale and compare with what will come. We long for that glory. We ask that you would restore it. We pray for the coming of our Savior and for his completion of the end. Lord, I pray that any here destined at this point, as far as we see it humanly, to be one of those who's put under Jesus' feet, I pray that you'd awaken them to life eternal and that they would run into his arms. We'll spend eternity one place or the other in separation from you or in fellowship with you. For those who have the confidence of that fellowship because of what Jesus has done, we rejoice, Lord, in this coming resurrection and pray that it would direct and mold our lives this day and throughout all eternity. Through Christ we pray. Amen.